You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. How have you been the past three weeks? I've been quite busy, but uh, time has flown by. It's good to have you back in studio. Thank you very much. We've had a couple of changes, I guess, or one big change. Um, Daniel has uh, moved from our family to pursue uh, other interests, so he was definitely a huge contributor to our show, and we wish him all the very best. Um, so I have to be very careful because he was automatic in my introduction, but uh, Daniel was wonderful, eh, Alex, and it's yeah, uh, he'll he- be missed. He really did a lot for the station while he was here. He did. He will be missed. And uh, we, as I said, we wish him all the best. Uh, today's show is live. Our number is 416-245-1534. If you would like to call in with any questions, we are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC. Please do give us a follow. We have such amazing guests, great health tips, and uh, some fun stuff we always throw up on our social media. So we'd love to have you uh, following along with us. And if you would like to email us, we are at thh at radiomaria.ca. Please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find all of our podcasts on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on uh, my website, which is kathybiasse.com. We had three great shows uh, while I was away. I hope you all had the time to either join us uh, Tuesday mornings at 11 or had the time to listen to the podcast because they they were outstanding. Uh, The first one was How Not to Diet with Dr. Michael Greger. It was a wonderful interview uh, introducing not only his new book, but some great uh, topics around diet, the science of diet and everything. So do take time to to, uh, listen to that. He's a wonderful speaker. He really is. He's uh, renowned in his field. Also, we... uh, Talked with Dr. Antonio Stecco. If uh, you listened to our first uh, podcast, podcast on fascia with him, um, this is a, an addendum to it. This is part two where he had some more recent information, uh, a lot of interest around fascia. It's uh, a new and upcoming area in the health field that people are starting to take notice of. And uh, as with many things, once uh, the science is out there, it starts to, to perpetuate itself into the health field. So a uh, very interesting podcast. Podcast. And our final one was uh, Sustainable Fashion with Ruth Marie Regruc. And uh, that has already got a lot of traction already. It's, um, it was a great podcast. It really, uh, again, with sustainability, it's something that, uh, especially in traveling, uh, you know, you see other cultures, you see what they're doing, uh, how uh, in, in Europe uh, they're really starting to take the environment on hold. Actually, when I was there, um, 
that young 16-year-old girl, uh, oh my gosh, her name has just eluded me. I know that people will be telling me what it is. Um, she, uh, there was a, a Freedom Friday, I think it was called. I can't remember. This is just off the top of my head. But a protest uh, in support of the environment. And um, I will look her name up in the break. And she, uh, her movements have really um really started to disseminate. I know she was here in Canada while I was away too. I will get her name. I'm sorry. It's just, uh, it's eluding me here. Um, but yeah, so the sustainability, uh, fashion sustainability, very interesting topic. So do take a listen to that. Um, we've started a little bit late here. I'm sorry. I had some technical difficulties on my end. So I, I want to get through this uh, fairly quickly because we have with us Dr. Mansur Muhammad, who is just so full of knowledge that uh, we, you know, the time that's allotted to him is, is never enough. So what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about was um, we've and many times we've talked about the impact of the environment and environmental toxins on health. And I wanted to share you yet another interesting example of where these two intersect. Um, this is a study. This is a study that I read correlating air pollution and baldness. Uh, the study was run by Dr. Kwan at the Future Science Research uh, Institute in South Korea. And the study found that fine particulate matter that is emitted by cars can actually damage the skin that holds the follicles of hair in place. And the study was conducted with humans, and it showed that the levels of important proteins needed for hair growth decreased the more uh, the person was exposed to air pollution. Um, and correlating to this was research in China that found that uh, men in their 20s were going balder uh, earlier than in previous generations. And um, it was, it's, very, it's very interesting for me to, to read these type of studies. Um, it does need to be noted for sure that two-thirds of the men who will experience some degree of baldness as they age, uh, the genetics remains uh, the number one factor influencing that. But uh, I guess the big takeaway, uh, Alex, from this is that um, if you're exercising in areas or want to exercise in areas of high pollution, mm-hmm. Exercising indoors may be uh, beneficial to you. So I thought that was kind of interesting and yet another, as I said, way the way environment, environmental toxins impact our health. Thanks for this tip. Ah, my pleasure. Uh, on to our guest today. Dr. Mansur Muhammad is the president and CEO of the DNA Company, a leading and innovative provider of comprehensive functional genomics testing and consulting in an industry first, individually customized supplements. Uh, he is widely regarded as a pioneer in medical genomics and has been the recipient of multiple academic and industry awards. He is the holder of several patents in the fields of molecular diagnostics and genomics research and is one of the most sought after national and international conference speakers in the genre of personalized medicine. Prior to his roles at the DNA company, Dr. Mansour uh, was founder and president of Menagene, CEO of Matrix. Director of Genomics at Quest Diagnostics, Director of Research and Development at Spectral Genomics, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and Dr. Mansour still to this day maintains an active clinical practice uh, as a genomics consultant to some of the leading executive health clinics in Canada and abroad. 
So today our topic is the growing awareness and concern about hormone replacement therapy. Uh, what we will be talking about, amongst other things, will be what is the most recent research telling us about HRT, hormone replacement therapy? Is there still a place for hormone therapy replacement, or hormone replacement therapy in women's health? And how can women improve breast health? All important topics. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, October. Um, so when we get back from our break, we'll be talking with Dr. Mansour. Mohammed. I was blinded. You gave me eyes to see. I was going under. You reached out to me. No, there's nothing you won't do to pick me up and pull me through every hour. Listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our number is 416-245-1534 if you have any questions for Dr. Muhammad. Uh, and please do follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at The Health Hub RMC. Dr. Mansour, welcome to the show. Thank you again for joining us. It's a pleasure, Kathy. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Um, let's let's start wide and work our way in, as I like to do. What is hormone replacement therapy, and, and ideologically, why is it used? At its at its simplest definition, hormone replacement therapy is self-describing. It's the reintroduction, i.e., the replacement, the reintroduction of hormones to presumably uh, the goal being to bring hormone levels back to what they were or close to what they were at a younger age in life. So, of course, we understand that these hormones, whether they be estrogens, androgens, even the the progenitors, i.e. the progesterones, those levels during late teens, 20s, even 30s are definitely different. Here we're speaking in women first. It applies to men as well. But let's first speak with women. Uh, the the 18-year-old woman, all things equal and considering all other normative evaluations of health being in place, meaning a healthy 18-year-old female, 
her levels of these hormones are going to be significantly higher when she's in her late teens, 20s, than when she becomes menopausal, be it perimenopausal or postmenopausal. So the goal being that with hormone replacement therapy, let's see if we can return the body to a younger biochemical, physiological state by, because we know these hormones exert such profound effects on the body that if they dip and they dip and they will dip, can we bring them back to healthy levels? And in so doing, can we uh, prolong that usefulness? Speaking plainly and simply, can we prolong that usefulness by the hormone replacement? That's the goal of hormone replacement. Well, here's the question I have for you. Um, if we trust in our body and as we age, doesn't our body know? And aren't these dips in hormones and changes in hormones, should they not be reflective of the age that we are at? Are we trying to preserve age here? <laughs> it's, um, your question summarizes one of the most profound uh, questions that, 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 that exists in the world of anti-aging, in the world of hormone replacement. Plain and simply, it should be a question for simply human health, whether, again, it's you know, related to women or men. I must admit that I have my own personal study uh, from a genomicist perspective, and from a functional medical perspective, leads me to believe. Now, I'm going to make, let's, let's get a couple of things clear, because this is obviously a very sensitive point. There are many, many individuals far more educated than myself uh, contributing to this arena, this arena. But I will say this. I will say what, what a fair assessment is, that there are still absolute experts on both sides of the divide, i.e., those individuals who echo exactly what you just beautifully summarized, which is to say, hold on, the human body through eons of evolution and development and adaptation, quote-unquote, understands when certain things are needed at certain times. And so there's a role and place for things like menopause. I'm focusing here on women. I keep emphasizing Similar considerations will go to men as well. Of course, there are others that say, well, menopause is something that is artificial, quote-unquote, from the perspective that we can delay it, we can override its effect on the body, and that obviously is the sum total of anti-aging when it comes to hormone replacement. So the first point I want to make is that there are absolute experts that still exist on both sides of the divide, number one. Number two, is hormone replacement as a whole, can it be considered to be, uh, you know, dangerous or something that everyone should avoid? The answer is resoundingly no. Like any other practice of medicine, like any other amazing development within the field of medicine and, and, and just understanding the human body, hormone replacement in all of its forms has been a godsend to certain individuals, to many individuals. So that's not the issue here. The issue here, I want to make it very clear to our audience, and I'm not trying to be apologetic, it's to say, listen, hormone replacement has really been an awesome tool in the, in the uh, repertoire of medicine for many individuals. Now, the third point, and I think, Kathy, this is what, again, you so beautifully summarized. Is hormone replacement, HRT or BHRT, bioidentical hormone replacement, should it be viewed as a natural default that in some arenas it's being presented that way, in some arenas it's being presented as, listen, no, no need to go through menopause, just as much as we're seeing now 
a fairly, and again, I'm expressing my personal opinion, a fairly insidious movement telling young women that, listen, there's no need for your monthly cycle, meaning there's no need for having a period. You can go on a birth control and simply avoid having flow, i.e. your days of menstruation altogether. What, what are we addressing here, Kathy? We're addressing what you summarized, and let's now, let's now address that. Clearly, in its innate setting, the female body has certain circadian rhythms that it goes through. These rhythms begin, the first obvious rhythm is the circadian rhythm before menarche, the young, the young girl who's not yet menstruating. Uh, so usually, let's say anywhere from 10 to 12 years of that initial development of the female body is without a menstrual cycle, i.e. it is without notably high and fluctuating levels of these potent steroidal hormones. So, Kathy, let's take this pause now and very quickly remind everyone, what are these hormones, these things that we're talking about, estrogens, progesterones, androgens, what are they, very, very quickly, what are they, and how do they exert their effects on the body? Because it's really important to understand that before we can then ask, well, why do we want to replace them? Do we want them constantly all of the time and so on and so forth? So simply speaking, steroidal hormones, they belong to the bigger category of these molecules, these, these chemicals in the body known as hormones. Hormones, by definition, are things that are produced in one part of the body, but they exert their effects in the entire body or in far reaches of the body. That's the classic definition of a hormone, a substance produced in one place, but it affects the body far off from the place that it was produced. The thyroid hormone produced where it produced, where it's produced, and it affects the entire body. The steroidal hormones, be it the ovaries or the testes and so on and so forth, affecting the entire development of the body. Okay, so how do these steroidal hormones affect the body? It's important that everyone out there understands that steroidal hormones exert a number of effects in our cells. The estrogens, for example, exert potent cellular growth properties. When estrogens are absorbed into the cells of the body, into the female body, and for that matter, into the male body as well, and yes, men, we make estrogens, and yes, women, you make androgens as well. When estrogens enter into cells, they influence the cellular behavior, they promote cell growth. Estrogens get into the nucleus of the cell. This is so important, Kathy. When estrogens bind to their receptors, the estrogen receptors, what happens literally is that, 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 that new uh, motif, the binding of the estrogen to its receptor, literally can travel into the nucleus of the cell and exert profound DNA expression changes, turning on certain genes, potentially turning off certain genes. In other words, they radically affect the behavior of that cell. This is not something trivial. Estrogens and these steroidal hormones radically affect cell behavior. Now, of course, when we say radically affect cell behavior, we don't mean that necessarily in a bad term at all. We know that this the changes that are exerted on the cells when estrogens enter them, many of those changes are positive. They're cell growth promoting. But here comes the point. Cell growth promoting, as a general uh, a summary of what estrogens do to cells, you can imagine that the cell growth 
promoting phenomena, the phenomena of that prepubescent young woman prior to breast development, and then post-pubescent, the adolescent young woman, breast development starts happening, certain obvious outward changes in the body start, start happening. These changes, these cell growth, cell multiplying is being brought about. Uh, these changes are being brought about by exactly what we just previously said, estrogens entering into the nucleus, causing DNA expression changes. Now, it does not take, you know, we'd say it doesn't take rocket science to recognize you don't want those profound changes happening every single day, of every single year of the female body. These are changes that are very deliberate. And when we look at the, uh, coming to your point, Kathy, when we look at the native state of the female body, and let's just for a time being focus here on the female body to, you know, to clarify and keep the topic as per the theme of this month, breast cancer awareness. It should be obvious to anyone looking at the female body in its innate state. What do we see? Again, we see the stages. We see prepubescent circadian rhythm, meaning uh, the much lower production of hormones. Then we enter into the postmenopause. So now here's the young woman. She's having a monthly cycle. All things equal. Obviously, we're speaking here of a prototypical, relatively healthy young woman. Now, what do we observe during those months and years, those years and months, where the young woman is having a monthly cycle? We observe precisely what it is, a monthly cycle, meaning... It's really important for our audience to understand during the days of a typical woman's monthly cycle, the levels of hormones in her body, the levels of estrogens in her body are not the same. It's a circadian rhythm. She begins her monthly cycle, i.e. on the day of flow, on the first day of menstruation, as she begins to have that flow there are changes, radical changes to the levels and metabolism of her estrogens, and then those changes go through until flow ends. She enters into days seven, eight, nine-ish of her cycle, and so on and so forth, through ovulation, and then back again a month thereafter to flow again. So the first really important point here, Kathy, is the normal female body is not subjected to, con to consistently high levels of any of these hormones every single day. This is the real first important point. The second important point is as we go through then uh, the menstruate years, we understand that most women, not all, will, for example, have one or a couple or a few pregnancies. This is yet another circadian rhythm in the healthy woman's body if she chooses to become pregnant. During pregnancy for those nine months, her body uh, experiences a complete shift in her hormonal presentation. One may say she gets a break from certain estrogens. She no longer is producing estradiol or estrone. She's producing the type of estrogen known as estriol, the estrogen metabolites that would have typically been present during normal menstruating months are not present during her nine months of pregnancy. So again, we see that the female body has this adaptation to not, the underlining point here, is not stay in this homeostasis, in this constantly elevated hormonal exposure. Then what do we have? Well, of course, we enter into perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause, where these hormonal levels decline radically. 
So now let's, having painted that picture, let's come back to the point that you just made, which is, if this is the normal, quote-unquote, uh, evolution, circadian rhythm of the female body, the healthy female body, for, you know, lesions and lesions of women over the millennia that came before, how might we assume, and here's the rhetorical question, might we assume that we can go in and radically alter those levels and in, in an attempt to quote-unquote re, uh, return to youthfulness or to, to maintain elevated levels without consequences, whether those consequences are positive or negative, without, you know, can we hope to do so? And the answer even if we want to get into the deep science of it, should at least be a question, the answer should at least be a pause where we go, listen, if this is what is happening naturally in the female body, and we understand the potent effect of these hormones, clearly, if we're going to take the step to just, you know, blanketly uh, normalize the levels and keep those levels every single day at the same level, we must expect that there can be changes. Now, again, those, some of those changes might be positive for some young women. But some of those changes, as you might imagine, if we understood the, look at the loopholes, look at the steps the female body went through to ensure everything about the native female body ensured that there wasn't constant elevated levels in the female body. So... All of that to summarize and to agree that, and then you know we can get into some of the details of it, but it's to agree that at a purely biologic, conceptual, logical level, we at least should be asking the question, we at least should be uh, educating the population that hormone replacement absolutely can have its place and its time and its benefit for some young women, but in other young women, it has to be something that should have a healthy question mark. And that question mark is, we are doing something to the female body. Let's make it clear. Postmenopausal hormonal replacement, or for that matter, being on the pill, which is a type of hormone replacement or hormone augmentation, these are not the native, these are not the innate states of the female body. We're not saying it's, it's absolutely negative, but we are saying it should be recognized and the population, the young women, should be educated to understand they, their body is not being, quote-unquote, returned to a normal level because there's nothing normal about maintaining elevated levels of hormones at certain times or at certain stages of female development. Does that make sense, Kathy? It makes absolute sense. And just uh, before we go on, I just we're not going to take a music break because this is such an important topic, and we I don't want to take the time. So I just wanted to uh, do a quick station um, reference. We are the Health Hub. We are on Radio Maria Canada, and I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and we are talking with Dr. Mansoor Mohammed. So, okay, so that that's a whole lot of information now. The the initiation of hormone replacement therapy, in my understanding, was to alleviate symptoms of menopause. Uh, I'm yes. not talking about birth control. I'm talking about hot flashes. I'm talking yes. about, you know, 
depending on who you read and what you read, and you know, a lot of it is not scientific. It's somebody who's 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 thinking and, and writing uh, without any backing. You know, uh, the the importance of estrogen for the heart, the importance of estrogen for musculature, and I go back to if our body is functioning normally. Is there a need? But uh, to go beyond that, so we're going to say that this is a therapy that's accepted and, and people are using it, some to advantage, and some it may not be for women again, and we're talking women in this case. It may not mm-hmm. be advantageous. So the two topics I think that will probably get us to the end of the show are, A, what is current research telling us about the, uh, the health benefits and the health risks of hormone replacement therapy and yes. risks I would really like to stress. And the other thing is, can genomic testing lead us to a conclusion where, A, yes, we should be using, or yes, we could be using, or this is something that you, because of your ge- genes, genomic testing, this is something that I would highly think twice about before introducing. Excellent. Um and those two topics can be addressed essentially as one, because the answer that, in at least many cases, the, the genetic insights, and here we're speaking, this is not at an industrial level, Kathy, this is at, you know, core academic uh, research, medical research. There are dozens, well over, you know, a couple hundred papers across multiple ethnicities studying the impact of genetics on hormone production, hormone metabolism, and therefore on how the female body would react to hormone replacement. So now let's address the two points that you brought up. And in order to address these two points, we need to understand it's why I placed the foundation of what and how estrogens uh, affect the cells and the female body. Well, there's one more thing we need to understand to answer these two questions. And that is every molecule of estrogen Every molecule of estrogen that the female body sees is metabolized. So in other words, when we, if the female body makes that estrogen endogenously or she is given that estrogen via, for example, hormone replacement, that estrogen molecule, which exerts the effects on the cells, the, all of the including positive effects, and let's just make it clear, estrogens are radically uh, necessary for optimal vascular health, for, for brain function, and so on and so forth. Um, we're not at all making estrogens the big bad monster. What we are saying is estrogens are radically important for health, but they're radically important for health, presumably in some type of context, which when we look at the clues from normal development, it seems that what is what is healthy with, with regard to estrogen is a circadian rhythm. It's that it's not every single day does the female body get exposed, or at least naturally exposed, to the same levels of estrogens. Now, why is this important? Because we said when the female body is exposed to estrogens, those estrogens are metabolized. And here we now introduce, Kathy, the first differentiator amongst females, meaning one woman to the next. Estrogens are broken down, Kathy, into three primary products. So every estrogen molecule in every female has the potential to be metabolized into one of three products. Very quickly, Kathy, these products are known as 2-hydroxyestrogen, 4-hydroxyestrogen, and to a lesser degree, 16-alpha-hydroxyestrogen. So every female all things equal, 
when they make their estrogen or they take estrogen, that estrogen molecule is going to be broken down in one of three byproducts as we've just said. And we're producing all three. It's just the levels of the three that we're producing. So here's what's important. It is universally accepted that the four hydroxyestrogen, one of those three, has a much more carcinogenic potential to the cells than its sister, the two hydroxyestrogen. So let me repeat that. Every woman produces all three. Different genes dictate which of the three you produce. And again, we have all three genes for all women. The one CYP1A1, CYP1A2 genes and their enzymes metabolize estrogens into the 2-hydroxy product. The CYP1B1 uh, gene produces the enzyme that metabolize estrogens into the 4-hydroxy product and so on and so forth. And what we just said is the 4-hydroxy estrogen has conclusively been shown to be the naughty metabolite, the undesirable metabolite, which again, all will then produce. But here's the point. The point is, those genes that we just mentioned that make those different metabolites come in different versions. So the propensity, the predisposition of any one given woman to make 4-hydroxyestrogen, that naughty product, which all women will make, but what we would prefer is, what, what is, what is clearly consistent with optimal health, is the woman who are producing less of the 4-hydroxyestrogen compared to the 2-hydroxyestrogen, which every study has shown to be the more desirable of the estrogen byproducts. And there's an awesome study I will draw your attention to the listeners, especially the folks, the, the doctors, the clinicians, the scientists out there. There's a study by Dr. Sin I Park from Korea, and the study was on estrogen metabolism, and the title of the study is Catechol estrogen 4-hydroxyestrogen. So in other words, the 4-hydroxyestrogen metabolite, and what do they call it in the paper? And it's an extremely well-written paper, is an ultimate carcinogen in breast cancer. Simply stated, this one of the three estrogen byproducts that all women make is the ultimate uh, stimulator in breast cancer cells. This, this is the theme of the paper, a really well-written paper, just in, uh, published in 2018. Okay, now hold on, Kathy. If every woman produces all three products, including the naughty 4-hydroxyestrogen product, okay, but changes, i.e. heritable differences in the different genes that are responsible for making estrogens into their different byproducts, if we a priori know that there's a young woman who has a slower version of the genes that make the, the more desirable 2-hydroxyestrogen, and in that same woman, she has the faster version of the gene, CYP1B1, that makes the naughty 4-hydroxyestrogen, hold on, we now know that that young woman, innately, all things equal, she is predisposed whenever her body whenever her body sees estrogens she is predisposed to converting those estrogens 
either the ones that her body makes and or that she takes in the form of the pill or in the form of hormone replacement, she will have a predisposition for converting more of those estrogens into the naughty, into the potentially carcinogenic 4-hydroxyestrogen. And so here's the point, Kathy. Just right there, if we pause right there, and this is a meaningful difference amongst women. We're not saying here this is one in a hundred women. We're saying 20 to 30% of women are genetically predisposed to making more 4-hydroxyestrogen byproducts than the safer 2-hydroxyestrogen byproduct. Now, dietary changes, environmental influences, lifestyle uh, choices can impact how these genes are expressed. So if at the a priori level, if at the innate level, you have the faster version of CYP1B1, and you did not know that, and you did not know that your body has the innate tendency to making more of your naughty 4-hydroxy byproduct, which again, every study, more and more and more, as summarized in that beautiful paper that I just mentioned, is demonstrating the carcinogenic properties of 4-hydroxyestrogen. How could you, if you were that young woman, versus a different young woman, and in this different young woman, she has the tendency of making more of the 2-hydroxy product as opposed to the 4-hydroxy product. So whenever her body sees estrogen, the second young woman, she makes the safer of the estrogen metabolites. How could we hope to, to treat these two women the same and hope to experience the same outcome? The answer is fairly you know, obvious that we can't mm-hmm. hope to see the same outcome. And Kathy, by the way, there are layers to this. So what we have to understand, Kathy, very quickly is the full hydroxyestrogen, what has been studied about this naughty, this potentially carcinogenic byproduct is that it directly influences DNA transcription behavior. This full hydroxyestrogen produces these things called quinones, And quinones in the world of chemistry, biochemistry, are some of the most notorious DNA negative, DNA affecting, they're called adducts, they're they're carcinogens to the human body. And this is happening at different levels in different women. And the upshot, Kathy, and I will conclude with this, the upshot is we can tell what these innate differences are. And the mere fact that there are innate differences in how a woman, in whether and how a woman produces 2-hydroxyestrogen versus 4-hydroxyestrogen, and by the way, if and when she produces the 4-hydroxyestrogen, which again, completely agreed upon that it is carcinogenic, then there are further genetic changes that differentiate women in their ability to get rid of the 4-hydroxyestrogen. So now let's layer and summarize and conclude with this. And I'll pose the question back to you, Kathy, which is the answer to the two points that you've just made. If you knew, very simple question, if you knew that there was a young woman She is 50 years old, she's perimenopausal, she's just kind of experiencing the first, you know, she's going into menopause. She has thus far lived her life, she was a healthy eater, made wise lifestyle environmental decisions, she, you know, made very healthy decisions, okay? And we've got two such young women. They both were healthy, they both ate well, took care of themselves, and so on and so forth. 
Now, one of those two young women had the genetic tendency, demonstrably so, that her body has the strong predisposition because of these genetic variations to produce more of the 4-hydroxy estrogen than the 2-hydroxy estrogen. This is number one. And in that same young woman, when she makes the 4-hydroxy estrogen, the cellular machinery that is responsible for getting rid of this potent carcinogen is lacking. It is inefficient in this young woman. So she has a double whammy. She produces more 4-hydroxy estrogen than we would like, and she is incapable or less capable of getting rid of that 4-hydroxy estrogen, all things equal, versus the second young woman who she produces a much healthier, innately, genetically driven balance. She produces more 2-hydroxy than 4-hydroxy, all things equal. And by the way, whenever she does make the 4-hydroxy, the cellular processes to neutralize and get rid of that naughty, toxic, carcinogenic 4-hydroxyestrogen is excellent. Here are these two women, and they're 50 years old. Can we hope to tell these two young women that their choice and their, their going on HRT or BHRT and the outcome of being on BHRT is absolutely the same for these two young women? My work and the work of many others suggests quite openly and quite logically the answer is no. The answer is you could not, which is not to say that the first young woman, the young woman with some of the negative traits, will encounter negative consequences being on BHRT. But you put a thousand of those first type of women on BHRT, you put a thousand of the second group of young women, the young women with the what we might call healthier uh, more beneficial estrogen metabolism pathways and you will, and that's what the studies show, clearly you will see statistically significantly different trends and, and, and outcomes, i.e. negative outcomes in bucket number one, the first group of women, then the second group of women. And here's my point. If even we could save one young woman from going through those negative consequences by at least alerting her a priori to her genetic predisposition, in my opinion, that's worth it. And, and that's the way I would discuss it. It is absolutely worth it. And, you know, <clears throat> the, the question, and this is not an area of my expertise at all, um, when we're dealing with women that are menopausal and they're considering hormone replacement therapy, in most circumstances, this is to deal with symptomology of the change of life, is it not? As opposed to improving an aspect of health. So is, is not having hormone replacement therapy and, and enduring and maybe dealing with the side effects of going into menopause, is that not the safer route to go in general? Or do you feel, and I know we only have a couple of minutes left, do you feel that there is a place and a need for hormone replacement therapy? So let me first come back to that assumption that we made, which is, is the hormone replacement simply a symptomatic solution or does it have the potential to exert, the potential to exert more substantive uh, beneficial impact, effects on the body. And, and I know, listen, I, I always say to my colleagues, no male, no man has the right 
to tell a young woman going through menopause that these are just symptoms. In other words, you know, the symptoms of menopause can be downright profound, disruptive, and negatively life-altering to some young women. So we are not in the least belittling the potentially, you know, uh, burdensome symptoms and effects of menopause. But what I want to make clear is there are studies that suggest beyond the relief of symptoms, symptoms here, secondary to what? Secondary to here is a body that for, let's say you've gone into menopause at 50, for easy math, you had menopause at 10, just for easy math. You had about 40 years of your life in a circadian rhythm, right? For what we discussed earlier, you were exposed to estrogens, and then all of a sudden, these estrogen levels have plummeted, including progesterone levels and androgen levels. Clearly, there will be changes to the body. Now, to answer your question, there are studies, good studies, that indicate whether it be improvement and prolonging vascular health. That's been clear when it comes to the beneficial uh, impact of replacing estrogens into the body, to say nothing of the improvement in sexual function, libido and so forth, when it comes to uh, replacing a balance of not just the estrogens, but the androgens and progesterones into the female body, when it comes to muscle tonicity and so on and so forth. The first part of my answer is to clarify that hormone replacement not only has the potential to relieve symptoms, it has the potential, underlying potential, to improve biologic outcome when done intelligently, when done judiciously, and when done purposefully. And each three of these things have their importance. Because again, we're not saying that hormone replacement is, by, is something that should be avoided at all costs. But the flip of it is, as much as the hormone replacement has the potential to not only relieve, reduce symptomologies, but to improve certain other coefficients of biologic function, muscle tonicity, vascular function, brain function, even mood behavior, and so on and so forth, we must, like any other practice of medicine, we must balance those positive outcomes against negative outcomes or the potential for negative outcomes. And equally, studies have absolutely confirmed in generic large-scale studies that there are absolutely potentially deleterious outcomes with hormone replacement. So let's pause there, Kathy, and, 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 and say, look, we've got these studies into the you know, tens of thousands of women. These studies are not, you know, 50 women studied here and 50 women. These are large-scale studies that do two things. They, A, do establish the positive effects of hormone replacement in some women. B, do establish the negative outcomes in some women. Now, if that's all that we had, if that's the only thing we knew about hormone replacement, an argument can still be made you know, and, and, and it's going to be the young woman and her healthcare providers that still can be made to say, listen, we will play the odds game, we will play the chance game, and that sounds worse than I intended it, that you use the hormone replacement knowing that there's these potential, there's these potential positives, and knowing that there's these potential negatives, and we will quote-unquote monitor you for any signs of the negative. There's, there's still that discussion. My point, though, Kathy, and this is what is starting to come about, is 
you take that exact context of what I've just said and you introduce just one more thing. You introduce, you say, look, yes, there are positive potential outcomes. Absolutely, yes, there are negative potential outcomes. And one more piece of information. Might we be able, might we be able to tip the scale to help women understand which young women have the potential for more of the negative outcomes. So all you have done, they're going to still make the same decision they were making before in an uneducated or at least a, a less informed manner. You're simply providing them with the information that says, listen, for you specifically, and by the way, we have the evidence in your family, mothers, aunties, sisters, female cousins, genetically inheritable. You have, and we see in you, the genetic traits that predispose you to the more negative outcomes that are demonstrable with HRT, you still have a choice. You still have a decision to make. You can still be monitored, but at least know which of the buckets you fall in. This is the point that we try to make, which is that you don't have to be in the dark of trying to make a decision, knowing that there might be positive outcomes, knowing that there might be negative outcomes, you could at least be better informed. That's the point of it, Kathy. That is the point. That's a Actually, you've done a perfect circle to exactly what I was hoping would come out in this. Um, understanding your genetics, understanding, um, as you said, where your strengths and weaknesses lie in metabolizing hormones is extremely important um, and, and, and exactly brought home the way that I was, as I said, intending it to. I want to thank you so much. The underlying information here is that, you know, understand that you can do certain testing, you can get more knowledge, do your research, and, and even if you... Even if you decide to go one way or the other with your genetics in front of you, that at least you've got the background and the confidence to go in that direction. Uh, thank you so much for this. It's such an important topic, especially in this month of October, uh, where we are bringing awareness to, to breast cancer. The hormone replacement therapy is a topic that does come up. So, Dr. Mansour, again, I really appreciate your time on the show. It's always so informative. And uh, hope to have you back again sometime soon in the near future. Everybody, um, thank Thank you for joining us, and we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.